Yeah, it is. Welcome in. Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025 The Game. Online at the Game Nashville app. You can hear us all around the world. Also, thegamenashville.com. How's it going? Chase McCabe here with you. Hanging out. Captain Kurt on the ones and twos behind the glass. Beautiful weekend here in Nashville. A lot going on, of course. The Vandy boys, Vandy baseball, getting it done last night. Defeating the Ohio State University 8-2 to over at the Hawk in the regionals. There's the World of Outlaws that's happening down at the fairgrounds. Check that out last night. Captain Kurt was there as well. And, of course, Titans OTAs taking place. They had another media availability on Thursday. They will do one more. Uh, we have mandatory mini camp coming up in a few weeks. It's hard to believe that it's June, but it is. We are at... Uh, June 1 here in this lovely world that we live in. But right now, Captain Kurt, let's start out like we always do and get to the pulse. Bringing you Nashville's most trending topic. You can make some noise. It's the pulse. Now with Jason McCabe. So I was looking at some articles on the interwebs, as I typically do as a sports radio host and producer. And I stumbled across this one on ESPN, predicting the story of the season for all 32 NFL teams. I'm like, okay, I'll bite. I'm intrigued. So I read through a couple of them, and of course, I had to jump down to the Tennessee Titans of what their biggest story could be this season. And ooh, it took me a minute. I had to think about it. I'm like, hmm. What could this involve? And so I read the byline that says, can Marcus Mariota establish himself as the cornerstone of the Titans offense? And this is a piece that was written by Teron Davenport, who we have on quite a bit on these airwaves. And it's a very small uh, blurb, so I'll just read it. Mariota is surrounded by perhaps the best supporting cast he's had. The Titans bolstered the offensive line, added playmaking wide receivers, and tight end Delaney Walker is returning from the, from injury. If Mariota doesn't prove he can stay healthy and be productive, the Titans might find themselves moving on to a different option under center. This should shock nobody that this is the biggest story for the Tennessee Titans because how many times have we been talking about it on this show? How many times have you heard us talk about it on other shows? This is just kind of where we're at, people. We're not going to talk about anything else until they hit the field, and and really he proves otherwise. He has to prove that he's the man. And for some people, like a guy that I work with every day in Braden Gall, he's already the man. He's already done enough. He doesn't have to prove anymore. I disagree with that. I think the injury is a concern. And, you know, one thing that I, I was listening to yesterday or a couple days ago, with with uh with Braden in respect to Braden um that he said well you know the injury he's he's missed less games and he named off other quarterbacks okay that might be true but then there's a ton of other games that he's left early that he's had to be pulled out of because of injury and I will also argue and you'll hear from D-Mace a, a little bit later that I think there's some games last year that he played because they didn't trust Gabbert and so they for, they rushed him back and therefore, the injury got even worse. Last week on the show, you may recall, I played a piece of audio from Clark Judge, who's uh, from the Talk of Fame Network, saying that he thinks Marcus Mariota you know, might need a change of scenery. Well, of course, that got the antennas going. 
you know, we talked about it on this show and I brought it to the guys in morning drive and they're like, Hey, we should get him on. Let's, let's talk to him directly. And so we did just that. And he came on the show, Nick Kale introduced him and said, look, we've, we've heard what you said. We want to give you a chance to, to tell our audience why you feel that way. And this is what Clark judge from talk of fame network told morning drive. Yeah, I think it's all about this year. I mean, that's no revelation. Um, the thing you want in a quarterback is a guy who can win, which he can, and a guy who's consistent, which he's not, and a guy who's injury-free, which he's not. Um, and so I think he's got to demonstrate this year that he can stay in the lineup, that he can produce more than he has the two, last two years. You look at the last two years, they're descending totals in one area, which is touchdowns, which is not good. He's got 24 and ascending totals in another, which is interceptions. He's got 23, which is not good either. You put those two together with um, the, the list of injuries and the arrow's headed in the wrong direction. So I, I just think that this is such a huge year for him and the Titans, really good quarterbacks, which he was coming out of college, are very hard to find. And, and I thought it was a good choice when they made it. But you look at it four years later and you say, what have they won? What has he done? And the answer is really not much. And so it's a critical year for him and the Titans. To me, he's got to demonstrate he can win and win big games, stay in the lineup, and be the quarterback who's going to make an excess. I think he's making close to $21 million this year. He's going to make a lot more when he goes on the market. And if you keep him uh, as your quote-unquote franchise quarterback, he's going to make a lot more than that. He's got to demonstrate that he's worth that. Completely agree. How can you not agree with that? Now, I don't think he necessarily needs a – you know, a change of scenery yet, so to speak. My my opinion could change at the end of the season. You know, I was thinking about this last night when I was getting ready for the show because there's a lot about, you know, Ryan Tannehill and what he's going to bring. And uh, they talked, uh, or he talked, I should say, um, to the media this week. And my thought was, okay, let's say through the first five games of the season, the, the Tennessee Titans come out and – they go three and two, which that's a little bit better than five hundred. Obviously, uh, you're. I think you're okay with that. Like, all right, this is a step in the right direction. They're playing well. Let's say they play well in all five games, and they go three and two because that is a, a very NFL type record to start off the season. So those first five games are. The Cleveland Browns, the Indianapolis Colts, the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Atlanta Falcons, and the Buffalo Bills. Pretty decent schedule there with two division games and everyone's picked to win the Super Bowl, the Cleveland Browns. Uh, that Them being in there, the Falcons, are they going to resurge? And then who knows what the Bills are? They'll probably just jump through a table. But let's say they go 3-2 and two to start off the season. However, let's say in that fifth game – Win or loss against the Bills, Marcus goes down with some sort of injury, and they come out and say he's going to be out for the next five games. Okay? So that gives you Denver, Los Angeles, Tampa Bay, Carolina, Kansas City going into the bye. So you lose Marcus for the five, for five games going into the bye. Insert Ryan Tannehill. He also goes three and two during that stretch. So at that point, the sample size you have of both quarterbacks, essentially, depending on how they play in, in those 10 games, it doesn't tell you a whole lot, but Tannehill has come in and he's been just as good and he stayed healthy 
The only reason that he comes out of the lineup is because you're giving the starter his job back. What does that tell you at that point? What does that do to the storyline with Marcus Mariota? Does it change how you feel? Does it change the contract negotiations? We've had this conversation over and over and over again. But my point is, with with Tannehill coming in as an insurance policy, at that point, you're not any better, you're not any worse. You're actually where right where you need to be. You still have a winning record. You're still in playoff contention. He has done exactly what you asked him to do which is why you get a good backup. But does it make you change your mind of, okay, maybe maybe we can pay Tannehill a little bit less to come back next year. We'll draft a quarterback, and we'll just we'll go ahead and start all over, but we'll, we'll use this guy as the stopgap because he can stay on the field, and we know he's doing a good enough job. That's not why they brought him in here. I'm just asking the question. And it goes back to the whole – at that point, does Marcus Mariota need a change of scenery? Derek Mason, of course, co-host of Morning Drive, uh, had some opinions on this when we were having this conversation, and these were his thoughts. We've seen players, not necessarily quarterbacks, because quarterbacks typically don't move if they've been starters and they played okay. They typically don't move from team to team. But we've seen other players at other positions go from team to team, and just a change of scenery has done them a lot better. Looking at Marcus, because he didn't dog Marcus. I, I I don't think if you listen to his commentary, he didn't dog Marcus at all. He basically stated fact. Everything he said was fact. No, Marcus there's, there's is one, hurt. There's no, one fact Marcus there. is hurt. He didn't say he missed a lot of games, but he said Marcus is hurt. He they said brought he's it. never on the field. Marcus That's is factually incorrect. Marcus is. They brought in Tannehill for a reason. I don't think they brought in Tannehill because they want to replace Marcus, but they brought in Tannehill because Marcus is injured a lot. He's injured a lot. And he probably would have missed more games had they had a capable back. There's Derek Mason uh, with cameos from Braden Gall and Nick Kale. But, and and to, I I hear what Braden is saying. I mean, he was on the field, but like I said, he either was playing injured, he didn't finish games, or he missed the games. And that is always going to be the biggest question mark surrounding the quarterback until he proves otherwise. I don't really know how else you can say that. That That is going to be it. I'm going to go into game one against Cleveland going, all right, I hope number eight doesn't throw a ton of picks, and I hope he finishes the game. That's That's kind of where I'm at. More touchdowns than interceptions, and please don't get hurt. Because right now the joke is if he sneezes, you worry that he's breaking a rib. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Until he proves otherwise, that's going to be the thought process with a lot of people in this town and and that cover this team. And you can have your side of, okay, Marcus is the guy. He's proven it enough. He hasn't proven much to me. He He hasn't done it yet. He's won one playoff game, and that was because, yes, a win is a win in the NFL, but if you go back and you watch that game against Kansas City, uh, there was some divine intervention there, Okay. Because they were getting their butt kicked through the first half. And then they came back and things went their way. A fluky tipped ball that he caught himself and scored a touchdown. I mean, you you know how it all went down. My point is, how do they change this storyline? How do they change it? Well, it's very simple. Because there's a player that the Titans acquired that can help change that storyline and make this team better. By never hitting the field. I will explain that next when we come back. The Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025 The Game.
That's right, Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 102.5 The Game, live from the Game Nashville Studios, presented by Wholesale Inc. of Mount Juliet. Chase McCabe, Captain Kurt, hanging out with you on a Saturday, 615-737-1025, if you would like to weigh in on the Titans, whether you agree or disagree with me, um, I, your calls are always welcome. So I said in, in answering the question of how quickly the Titans can change their biggest storyline, which is the quarterback... Marcus Mariota and his health and his production and all of the above. We don't question whether he's a good guy or not. We know that. Everybody loves Marcus, but the production is kind of what we look at. So this is how you answer that question. Stay with me on this. It's because of Ryan Tannehill, and it's because he should never hit the field. That's how you do it. If Ryan Tannehill doesn't hit the field, I think you've answered the question because what that does is or what that says, I should say, is that Marcus played all 16 games for the first time in his NFL career. Now, he could come out because they're blowing out a team or whatever. That's fine. But he's played all 16 games, which means he has stayed healthy for the most part. At the end of the season, I don't think anyone is 100%. So he stayed healthy. And he's played well enough to put you in a position to hopefully make the playoffs because I think that's another part of this that a part of the answer is okay they've either won the division or they've done well enough to be a wild card team and they've made it to the playoffs they've become a contender a consistent contender that's what this team needs to become so while Ryan Tannehill is an insurance policy he is a major upgrade over Blaine Gabbard at the backup position He's not the guy I want to roll in game one against Cleveland and he be the guy all season long. But you know that if you need him, he's there and you can use him. The hope is you don't use him. That's how you change that storyline. You don't want him to come in at all. Even if it's, you know, look, I, I know if it's one game, if Marcus misses his one, misses one game and yet they win, you know, the division, make a playoff run, you're probably not going to think much about it. But there will still be those people, and I might be one of them, saying when you're about to sign him to a huge contract and pay him a bunch of money, well, yet, you know, he still didn't play all 16 games. I mean, can't we take a a couple million off or a couple hundred thou? He still didn't play all 16 games. I probably would do that just because why not? I'm just getting cynical. The older I get, I'm getting cynical. But Ryan Tannehill, what has stood out to us and to head coach Mike Vrabel so far in a couple of OTAs? Mike Vrabel answered that question. He came in, he learned a new offense really quick. You know, that's not uh, something that's easy to do. And so I think he studied very hard. It was important to him. Um, I also get the, the sense that he, you know, he wants to be here. He wants to be a part of uh, this team and this organization. And... Um, I really like the dynamic between Marcus and Ryan and, and Logan and, and really with Pat. I, they meet with, they have time, they meet with, with Arthur and then they have time, they meet with Pat and I'm, I always love popping in there and kind of seeing the dynamic and, you know, there's three different guys have been three different places and um, it's always good to get other perspective to say, hey, we used to run this route this way or we ran this play and then that's what they're doing. I think one thing that that is good for Marcus Mariota is to have a guy that, He's played against a guy that has, 
you know, been through the wars of the NFL and Ryan Tannehill. Uh, they've been in the league. I think Tannehill's been in a little bit longer, but they've been in, you know, virtually the, the same amount of time and played in the AFC. Uh, obviously, <laughs> Miami had to face the New England Patriots a couple of times a year, so that's something that Ryan Tannehill has learned a lot from. He's been hit a lot. Uh, he's battled injury. So there's some similarities that these two share with each other and they can discuss and I that helps their their relationship. And so I, I believe that, you know, with with these two quarterbacks, that is going to help the relationship, but it's also going to help the competition because Ryan Tannehill uh, admittedly says he's in a unique situation coming in to the Tennessee Titans. And he addressed the media. It's definitely a transition for me. Um, definitely tough at times, but um, Marcus is great to work with. The staff here, Marcus, our quarterback room uh, is really great. And when you work with good people, great people, and, and you're all in, aligned and in this thing together trying to win football games, it definitely helps with that transition. But, yeah, there are some things that are tough about it, but um, it's just kind of what goes along with it, you know. So I'm um, just trying to take it day by day, get better each and every day, um, learning a new offense here. So, uh, you know, digging in, learning as much as I can, uh, taking some bumps and bruises along the way, but uh, but excited to, excited to be here and, and, and help this team win. It, it, the interesting part in all of this, and I think, you know, you have you have situations where there's a quarterback that you know, okay, hey, we're signing you as the backup. That's what you are. You are going to be the backup, and they go, all right, I, that's what I am. I love this this job. I love this league. You know, Jim Sorgi. When he was backing up Peyton Manning, he knew he probably wasn't going to take Peyton Manning's job. He was going to play some preseason games and then and then hold the clipboard, and maybe week 17 he would get to play. But he knew he was not taking Peyton Manning's job. Blaine Gabbert last year, the idea was he wasn't going to take Marcus Mariota's job. The hope was he wasn't going to play. We know what happened. He had to play some. Ryan Tannehill, though, this was a trade. And he went on, you know, to say he knew that there was going to be some changes. He knew he was probably going to be leaving one way or another from Miami. But if I'm him, the hope was probably they were just going to cut him and he was going to be able to pick his destination and possibly get a chance to start again somewhere. Wasn't likely, but you never know. That didn't happen. He was traded, so he didn't have a choice. This is a great market. I think he knows that. This is a place that he wouldn't say no to, but he knows coming in, he's not the guy. There's still that starter's mentality, though. That is a good thing. When you have a quarterback, when you have any any position on a team in any sport, and there's a guy in front of you, it should always be the goal to go, hey, I'm going to take that guy's job. Even though the coaches and everyone else is saying, no, you're not, you still have that mentality. Ryan Tannehill was asked if he finds himself wanting to still be the starter. I have a lot of competitive juices, and I want to go out and compete on the football field each and every day. Um, I'm competing against the defense right now, you know, so they're competing against us. They're doing everything they can to stop us. We're trying to move the ball down the field and put points on the board. So, uh, yeah, it's, as a competitor, there's some things that are tough about it, but uh, it doesn't take the competition side of football out. You know, you put the ball down and you play, you're, you're still playing. So, um, you know, just trying to compete against the defense each and every day. I've never questioned Marcus Mariota's competitiveness. Never once have I questioned that. I've never questioned his toughness. It's just he gets hurt, and sometimes he's inconsistent. 
but I've never questioned whether he had a competitive side to him. The fact that you have a guy coming in at Ryan Tannehill that has that mentality of, okay, I'm being told I'm not the starter. I'm being told I'm the backup. Yeah, I'm still going to play like I'm the starter, and I'm still going to try and take your job. Is exactly what you want as a coach, because guess what? It's the NFL, not for long. That's what it stands for. And what that means is if Ryan Tannehill has to come in in some sort of injury situation, which as I started this segment on, I said, you don't want that to happen. You you want him to stay off the field because we want this Marcus thing to work out. But if he comes in and he just blows it up and is awesome, guess what? He's the starter. Done. That's how it is. How many times have you seen that situation in the National Football League where a guy gets hurt and loses his job? It's part of it. I mean, it's like, you know, Nick Foles won a Super Bowl, and I know Wentz was not coming back. I mean, but even, you know, it got to the point where it was like, all right, uh, <laughs> things are going so well. Maybe we should just ride this for a while. I mean, Wentz is the guy you drafted to be the future, but now two years he's gotten hurt and he had to go to Nick Foles, and now they don't have that insurance policy anymore. He's in Jacksonville. But it happens a lot. You hope it doesn't happen here. But it happens a lot. And so that's why that mentality for Ryan Tannehill is exactly what you want. You want him to think that way. You want him to go in and every time he watches Marcus in practice go, I can do that better. I will challenge you. And then he goes out and he gives it his all and he tries to do it better. The coaches see that too. If the coaches see him practicing like he's the starter, even though he's not, that's going to go a long way. That's why you make that trade. That's why you bring him in. Mike Vrabel, the head coach, uh, commented on Tannehill's mentality coming in. The one thing I do know that there shouldn't be any restrictions on leadership. You know, if a guy that shows up and is a rookie and he's able to lead or provide some sort of assistance to somebody by either playing hard or knowing what to do or helping his teammate, I would never want um, anybody on this team not to to want to try to lead and to help somebody else regardless of if they are with the first team, the second team, and the third team. You you don't need a title to be a leader. You you don't need a title to be a leader at all. And Ryan Tannehill is a guy that from people I've talked to and what I've seen so far, he's got some leadership qualities about him. And this team needs a lot of him, and especially when you have a quarterback that's not, you know, he's vocal, but he's kind of quiet, he's mild-mannered. If you have a guy that can help with that message and spread that message even more, why can't Ryan Tannehill be that guy? The Tennessee Titans, OTAs, they'll have a, another media thing on Tuesday, I believe. But Steve Lehman from News Channel 5, you hear him on Darren and Donick as well. At times, he's been covering this team for a long time. I'm going to ask him his thoughts on Ryan Tannehill when we come back here on the Chase McCabe Show, ESPN, 1025 The Game. Chase McCabe show rolling right along here on a Saturday morning, hanging out in Nashville studios presented by wholesale Inc. Mount Juliet. Let's say hello to our buddy, Steve Lehman from news channel five, Steve. Good morning. Chase. How are you on this Saturday? I'm doing well, you know, holding it down, talking some Titans, Marcus Mariota stuff. We've never discussed before, not even once, right. <laughs> but no. I, I, I do want to start with that uh, because I, I basically said, you know, I was reading an article on ESPN about the storylines of every team. And, of course, the one surrounding the Tennessee Titans is always going to be Marcus Mariota, 
until it's not. Whether he plays all 16 games or he plays consistently, he wins a Super Bowl, it doesn't matter. He's going to be the biggest storyline. But what do you make of Ryan Tannehill so far? I believe he's said all the right things. I think the coaches have said all the right things. He's come in here to be the backup. But he has those competitive juices, which I think is a good thing for this team. Yeah, and he also has the resume, Chase. He's a guy who started you know, 100 games or something like that in the National Football League. He's got a 4,000-yard season under his belt. So the numbers are there that can tell you that Ryan Tannehill is a guy who can be a starting quarterback and a successful starting quarterback in the National Football League. Now, you're right. John Robinson, Mike Vrabel, and the Titans have gone out of their way, essentially, to say that Marcus Mariota is the starting quarterback of the Titans, and Ryan Tannehill was brought in to be the backup. And Tannehill echoed those comments this week when he spoke to the media finally for the first time here in Nashville. But here's the thing. What happens? That's all well and good right now. But what happens if it's October 15th and Marcus goes down and then misses the next week and Tannehill comes in and leads you to a win in relief or leads you to a win as the starter the next week? What's the conversation like then? You know, right now, I don't think there's any controversy. There's no way Ryan Tannehill beats Marcus Mariota out in training camp. But I think the question you have to ask is, what happens if there is a bump in the road somewhere this year where Mariota goes down and cannot play for some length of time and then Tannehill succeeds? What's the conversation like then, not just outside, but internally over there at St. Thomas Sports Park? Yeah, and that's something that I've been discussing this morning. I, I basically use that similar example, but I said the first five games of the season, they go 3-2 and two with Marcus, but in that fifth game against Buffalo, he goes down, and they say he's going to miss the next five. And Tannehill comes in, and he does the same thing. He goes 3-2, and two, but he's got your team in a position that they're playing well, the defense is doing their job, the offense is clicking, and they're in contention for, for the division Marcus has already shown you at this point that he can't stay healthy. Do you ride out Tannehill or do you go back to Marcus? Because we all know if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. So that's that's what I'm curious about of, of how they're going to answer that question. Yeah, this may be the rare case where in that scenario, if you have two quarterbacks, you actually have two quarterbacks because you would be having some level of success with both of them. And I think that would be an interesting question in and of itself, of what do you do then? Because it wouldn't be like Tannehill just lit the world on fire. It would be the same numbers of Mariota. And here's the thing that I don't think people have probably talked enough about. If you think Marcus Mariota is injury-prone, what do you think Ryan <laughs> Tannehill is? Because he hasn't been healthy in four years. And, he, you know, he missed all of two seasons ago, he missed a huge chunk of last year. So for those people thinking that Tannehill is the perfect insurance policy for the inevitable occasion that Marcus Mariota goes down at some point this year, you may be right. But how long can you expect Tannehill to stay upright and able to perform out there? So I think what the Titans did is they did provide themselves a real insurance policy that if Marcus Mariota cannot play 16 games this year, as he has throughout his career up to this point that they've got a guy that they can turn to and they can trust back there but I also don't know if it's wise to think that Ryan Tannehill's a guy who's going to come in and give you 16 games because you haven't seen that as well from him 
Steve Lehman from News Channel 5 here with us on the Chase McCabe Show. And I, I think one way you take a little pressure off the quarterback position is you get the production out of Derrick Henry that we saw at the end of last year. He went over 1,000 yards. Uh, I know that Derek Mason that I work with every day thinks he could possibly lead the league in rushing this year. He's going into a contract season, which he says he's not worried about, he's not thinking about. Of course, what do you expect a, a player to say in that situation? But what do we expect out of number 22 this year? I mean, he showed that he had the the right mindset towards the end of last season. Do you think it carries over for a full 16? I would like to think so. I, I would like to think he found something there at the end of the season. Maybe more importantly, the Titans found how to use Derrick Henry at the end of the season. Now the question is, can Arthur Smith step into the play caller role and find the same rhythm that Matt LaFleur had with Derrick Henry at the end of last season when other teams obviously are going to focus on that up front. I think the benefit here is I think this offensive line is going to be improved. You add Roger Saffold, who's one of the best guards in the league, on the left side next to Taylor Lewan. Ben Jones should be healthy, and the belief is Jack Conklin will be healthy back on the right side of the offensive line. You throw all those things into the equation, and I think you're looking at a much improved offensive line this year, which should help open up some holes. You get that thing going, and I think you're exactly right. You take some of the pressure off of Marcus Mariota in that passing game. But, Chase, the other thing I think helps out in that regard is the weapons they've now given Mariota on the outside. Delaney Walker should be back yep. healthy. He was always his favorite target. You've got Corey Davis maturing into a guy who looks more and more like a number one type receiver. You bring in A.J. Brown in the draft, and you sign Adam Humphreys, who is a safety blanket, third down, possession type target who just gets open. And I think you do all of those things okay, maybe the running game's off one week or some team really sells out to focus on that. Well, if you put seven, eight guys in the box to try and stop Derrick Henry, how are you double-teaming Delaney Walker? How are you taking away Corey Davis? Now all of a sudden those guys get open, and maybe you see some bigger numbers from Marcus Mariota because of that. Well, and that's where I was going to go next with this is they have all these weapons. It's the best team on paper that Marcus has had since he's been here. And you have to spread the ball around. I mean, this isn't Madden football on, on a video game. You're not going to be able to give Derrick Henry, you know, 1,200 yards and uh, Corey Davis, you know, 1,100 yards and, and spread it around like that. How do you think they're going to balance this offense under Arthur Smith? I, I mean, I think that's the million-dollar question, Chase, because we don't really know what the offense under Arthur Smith is going to look like. I think it's going to have a lot of the same principles you saw last year from Matt LaFleur, but remember, this is a guy who's been around through four different head coaches and now five different play callers, and a lot of that has been with Marcus Mariota. So I have a feeling you're going to see bits and pieces from several of those offenses in the Arthur Smith offense that we see this year. And you're right, the talent pool is greater than it's ever been on the offensive side, at least in recent memory with Marcus Mariota as the quarterback. So how they spread it around, I don't know. But I think the goal is to be multiple. I think they're going to want to be run first. But again, if somebody defensively looks at it and says the Titans want to be run first, let's sell out to take that away. I think this team has the ability to stretch the field with A.J. Brown. I think they have the ability to get open over the middle with Delaney Walker and Adam Humphreys. And I really do. With these other weapons, I think we sold short how far Corey Davis came last year. With 850 yards and all that. Right. Excuse me, Chase. I, I think we sold short his improvement last year 
as close to a number one wide receiver because he couldn't do any more than that because there was no one to take the pressure off of him. Now you put these other pieces around him. I think there's a chance we see Corey Davis have a monster year. I agree with that. Steve Lehman from News Channel 5 here with us. And we know that there are some guys going into a contract year. Uh, we know Jack Conklin, they're not picking up the fifth-year option, so this is a big year for him. Uh, Derek Henry is in a contract year. Marcus Mariota, they could make some time with him because of franchise tags and things like that. We don't know exactly how that will play out. But uh, also Kevin Byard. And to me, he's the priority for this team. If If I'm the Tennessee Titans – I don't let him even sniff the free agent market. I try and get this done before training camp. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Of all the guys you just mentioned there, they're all going into years where they need to perform and try to take the next step you know, for their careers financially and stability and all that. Kevin Byers is the one guy in that equation where there are no question marks. He is an all-pro safety. He has performed at that level ever since his rookie season, frankly. And you've got to lock him up. He's got to be back. He's got to be a focal point for this defense for some time to come. So I imagine John Robinson is trying to get with his agent and try to work something out right now because you're right. You'd love to just have that question mark gone by the start of training camp so you don't have to worry about it during the season or into the offseason next year. You just know that Kevin Byard is going to be in two-tone blue for some time to come. I think that's priority number one. But I also think it's not a terrible thing, Chase, that all those other guys that you mentioned – have that sort of lingering question over their head because how many times do we see guys enter contract years and sort of realize what's at stake and go give it their all? I mean, frankly, I think you can even look at Derrick Henry last year. I mean, he got benched. He was not playing. He was not a factor on this offense in the middle of the season to the point that people were flat out calling him a bust and saying his days in Tennessee and, heck, maybe the National Football League were numbered at that point. So he finally gets another opportunity there, and I think he realized, this may be my last shot. i got to give everything I can. And he ran like a different guy. He ran like a guy that was 6'3", 247, and wanted to use that body and use his strength. And guess what? He ran the best he has in his NFL career for that month. You hope you get that same passion and desperation from Derrick Henry coming back this year. And maybe you get it from a Conklin or a Mariota or some of these other guys that are playing for contracts as well. Steve Lehman, News Channel 5, here with us this morning. Hey, Steve, I appreciate it as always, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely, buddy. Have a good weekend. You too. Steve Lehman, News Channel 5. Follow him on Twitter, at Steve Lehman, and, of course, check him out on The Big Nickel. Uh, When we come back, the uh, SEC has made a big ruling, and uh, I think this is the right move. We'll discuss that next when we come back. Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025 The Game. Oh, a little Chumbawamba bringing us back here on the Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025, the game all around the world on the Game Nashville app as well. Chase McCabe, Captain Kurt hanging out. The Game Nashville Studios presented by Wholesale Inc. of Mount Juliet. Appreciate Steve Lehman for joining us uh, from News Channel 5. Max Herz, who uh, hosts the Anchor Down podcast here on our station, will be joining me in studio here in just a few minutes at the top of the next hour. A lot to get into with the Vandy boys, the baseball team, and the regionals, and also uh, some renovations that are going to happen over on that campus coming up uh, here pretty soon. So we'll talk to Max about that. But the SEC has uh, made the right move. Uh, For me to just be blunt about it, 
they have, and this was something that's been discussed a lot really over the last few years, not only in the SEC, but all of uh, college sports, and that is should you sell beer and wine at sporting events, football games, baseball games, basketball games, and uh, we know MTSU actually did that last year. They started it. Uh, Chris Massaro was on with Morning Drive, their athletic director. You'll hear from him in just a second, but you can listen to that interview at thegamenashville.com. But the SEC has said that uh, August 1st is when the ban will be lifted, so it goes into effect. They are not requiring their schools to sell alcohol, which will be limited to, to beer and wine, but they will have that option. And to me... And and hear me out on this. I know this is very you know th- this is a it's a tough subject sometimes because it's a college campus and you have the worries of underage drinking and and everything like that. And, and let me try and 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 sell this to you. You have the worry of underage drinking anywhere. I mean that that's just an unfortunate part of of society. I mean that that's just what you have. The legal drinking age is twenty one, but you're going to have people that are drinking under the age of 21. And if we're all being honest, uh, I think probably 90% of of the population might have done that at some point in their life. I'm not saying it's right, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm I'm just saying that 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 it's everywhere. It's not just on a college campus at a football game because right now you have students and fans and everyone sneaking it in and, or they're just getting, you know, plowed before the game because they can't buy it in the game, so they're going to drink as much as possible because for some reason we tie alcohol with sporting events and then they're going to go in and you're going to have incidents happen. So, I I believe that if you if you go ahead and just say, "All right, you can buy a beer at the Tennessee game at Neyland Stadium. You can only buy 3 of them though. We're going to give you a limit." That's a that's a happy compromise. Because what does that also do? You're making money for your school. You can take that money and put it in other places. So it's a win-win. You have Bob that wants to go watch the Vols, but he would like to have a beer. And then you're making more money at selling it probably, what, $7, $8, 9 maybe, a pop. That's more money for your for your school. So I believe that the SEC has made the right decision. Now, what's interesting is reading, you know, Alex Scarborough has an article on ESPN, and there are others that, that have been talking about it. Um, the Alabama said in a statement, it doesn't expect to begin immediately selling alcoholic beverages in public areas. And and keep in mind, too, that there are some schools that, like in the suite levels and things like that, you've been able to bring it in. You've been this – is, this has kind of been a gradual thing. Uh, the University of Georgia, get this, Captain. They're going to sell it at uh, in Athens, but only in the section that the $25,000 donors sit. So you have to donate $25,000 or more to the university, and then you can you know have a drink at the at Georgia. I think all schools should sell it. I just look, you're sneaking it in. I'm, I'm it's there. All schools should sell it. From what I just said, you can make money. Uh, Commissioner Greg Sankey of the SEC was on with Paul Feinbaum earlier this week before the ban was actually lifted, and Feinbaum asked him about what he thinks about selling beer at sporting events. The beer conversation is is 
I'm not trying to compare this to, to the federal government, but it almost seems that each campus has different views. Uh, do, do you would you do you want the the league to to have a formal position on this? I don't know if it's necessarily what I want. If I if I rewind the tape, this conversation really started in 2010, and looking at what we do. So we're nine years in. I'm interested in conclusion to the conversation, and whatever that is, want it to be both responsible and sustainable. And we usually don't have that issue as an agenda item. We we have probably two or three times during the nine-year period here. Um, it'll be an agenda topic for conversation. I'm not one that predicts outcomes, um, even though I've been in, in conversation with folks. And uh, there's an opportunity for uh, maybe updating the policy, but I, I would... I would be reluctant to try to guarantee change at this point. And again, that was before the ban was lifted when Greg Sankey was on with Paul Feinbaum at the uh, the meetings down there in Destin. Uh, they have since lifted the ban, and now it's up to the schools. It's up to the 14 schools. And, you know, I made a joke. My dad and I were actually talking about this on the phone, and he goes, so what do you think? Do you think that the, the SEC schools are actually going to do this? And I said, yeah, I do. I think when this is all done – which will, you know, it, it, it's probably going to take a couple of years to, to kind of get it all and policy and everything. I said, yeah, I believe that 13 of the 14 schools will probably do it. And he goes, well, which one do you think won't? And I said, probably Vanderbilt, but that's because they're Vanderbilt. And that was my joke. But I, they need to. And we'll get into this with Max Hers when he's in studio. This is a perfect opportunity for Vandy because they can make some more money that they can put in a stadium fund. Like, let's build a stadium. That's another conversation. But as I mentioned, MTSU has already put this into effect. They did it last year. We had Chris Massaro, their athletic director, on Morning Drive yesterday to discuss this and kind of take us through the process of, of what it was like. And uh, Chris Massaro gave his thoughts on it and what the first year was like of alcohol at MTSU. Well, I think that it's played out really well for us. And, and we got approval last year to sell it at uh, Floyd Stadium at Murphy Center and also our baseball park, Reese Smith Field. And, and uh, it worked well. We didn't have one alcohol problem. There was, uh, I think our, our people did a great job in terms of uh, checking IDs and wristbanding folks and, and making sure that, you know, the underage population doesn't have access to the alcohol. And, and uh, we were like a lot of others. We felt like our alcohol incidents went down because people knew that they don't have to consume it all at the tailgate, that they do have options over a period of time to come to the game and and uh, if they want to have a, a beer, to have a beer at the, at the football game. The other thing that we do is we partnered with Lyft, you know, and promoted that as well to try to take away, you know, the drinking and driving thing, which, uh, you know, it's kind of the fun and the sale of alcohol, that allowed us to have a partnership with a rideshare program like that. Chris Massaro, Athletic Director at MTSU, discussing the process that they went through and what the first year was like uh, for alcohol. Beer and wine is what this is limited to um, at Floyd Stadium. And I, I believe for a, a school like MTSU, and he actually says this later on in the interview, this is a prime opportunity to bring in some extra funding for a for a small smaller school, when what I mean by that is you know small conference, you're not Power Five at MTSU. So you've seen a lot of 
these schools in the in the group of five that have started to do this over schools in the power five because it's just another way that they can add to their programs and and add money with the sec it's just a no-brainer and yeah you can say well i mean they're going to be getting drunker at the games and you heard him say that alcohol related incidents have actually gone down if you're a college kid we all know we've all been college age kids before your thought process doesn't work like it does now as an adult. Your thought process is, okay, Tennessee plays Alabama at 3.30 Eastern time, so if I wake up at 11 after going out on the strip the night before, I can start drinking by 11.30, and I'll be drunk by the time the game kicks off at 3.30 because I can't take it in with me, so... Let's all do a round of shots right before we go in the stadium. Look, that's kind of how you think. Just sorry. That's newsflash. That's how it works sometimes. And now maybe you change the thought process a little bit of, no, hey, Bob, we can we can get beer. We'll have a beer at the game. We'll get one as soon as we get there, and then we'll get one at halftime, you know, whatever. Probably a college kid is going to drink all three in the first quarter, but that's, look, if you limit it, if you have regulations, this can work, and it makes money for your school. I believe it's a good thing. I'm going to ask uh, Max Hers, who uh, hosts the Anchor Down podcast here on the Game Nashville, what he thinks and what he thinks Vanderbilt might do. Plus, we'll talk some Vandy baseball. Tim Corbin and the Vandy boys, they are rolling. We will discuss that next here on the Chase McCabe Show on ESPN 1025 The Game. No, we're not scared. Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025, the game all around the world on the Game Nashville app. How's it going? Chase McCabe here with you, Captain Kurt, behind the glass, and pleased to be joined in studio by our own Max Hers. He's the host of the Anchor Down podcast and does a lot of other stuff for us here at the Game Nashville, but has also um, been covering Vanderbilt baseball very closely this year, as close as calling their games as well <laughs> to start the season. Max, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning. Yeah. Uh, before we get into baseball, I do want to close out the conversation I was having previously because you're so in tune with Vanderbilt Athletics and what's going on over there. And Malcolm Turner has come in and, and changed a lot in a short amount of time. With the SEC lifting the ban on, on beer and wine sales at SEC stadiums, do you believe that Vanderbilt is going to get on board with this and we're going to have beer at uh, both uh, Dudley Field and, and Memorial Gym and, and the Hawk? Yes, I think Vanderbilt will. I think they will be getting next season when they're first allowed to, and I honestly think it would be a mistake for them not to. And this is something that I, I, I've always thought the rule was ridiculous. I thought it was archaic that the SEC is telling their member schools you do not have the autonomy to make this decision yourselves. And it's one thing to say you don't have to, but it's a different thing to say you can't. And every other major conference says it's a school-by-school -school decision. Yes, it's college sports. I mean, the issues you addressed in terms of the drawbacks are real issues, but it should be up to the schools. And Vanderbilt has fewer hurdles to climb than some of the others because it's a private school. And again, most of the public schools have already taken preemptive steps to kind of get past this, which Tennessee has done. So it looks like they're going to as well. But I, I think the area where Vanderbilt can most benefit from it is student attendance and student engagement. And we've all seen what the student section looks like at a Vanderbilt uh -huh. football game that doesn't feature a ranked opponent or a big name or a rival on the other side. And if I'm them, 
I just come out and and I put signage or, or digital advertising that'll reach students that says there's beer at football games this year. Yeah, and I, I think that's all it takes to to get Vandy students who have been tailgating for six hours before the game, whether it's at the fraternities or off campus or wherever it is, instead of drinking for six hours, then going and sitting on a couch or, or going to a bar on Broadway and watching the game, which is what most of them are doing, they'll go to the game at least for the first half and drink a little more. Right. I just I, I feel like it's a no brainer. Uh in yep. you know, just to with with underage drinking and worrying about that, I get that. And that's a concern and that's something the law is twenty one is twenty one and that's when you, you know, are allowed to, to buy alcohol, but don't you really have the same concern at a Vanderbilt football game that you would at a Titans game? Right. That if a if a nineteen twenty year old, I mean, that's just it's the same concern, and so I I just think it's a good thing for the SEC. It would be a great thing for Vanderbilt, especially you just said attendance, getting those attendance numbers up. But Malcolm Turner, and we'll, we're going to talk renovations and all of that. He started that initiative, but this is all leading to a bigger thing because eventually they're going to have to do either a major renovation to that stadium or build a new one and do some things to memorial gym as well and as silly as it sounds selling beer could actually help that so yeah absolutely i mean there's revenue to be made as of how much i don't think we really know i hope the prices aren't astronomical right i i think they probably would be but that that kind of gets left up to the to the contracted concession company i don't know how much of that is vanderbilt's decision but yeah i mean it's it could be a revenue maker, but I haven't having gone there and graduated from there two years ago. I I was always peeved just about how little the students cared about the sports, and I think any way you can increase student engagement, I mean it it just snowballs. They're they're more engaged on a day to day. They're more engaged season to season. They're more likely to go to a game of a sport that they haven't been to before. I, I think depending on how they do it with baseball, it. It could be incredible. I mean, the the student attendance for baseball is really the same few diehards there day in and day out who absolutely love the program. And then you'll get maybe 200 to 300 in the outfield for a nice Saturday. And I mean, by the time the students are gone, maybe you've played one or two games where the temperature is 70 or higher during the day. So, I mean, this this is going to this is going to bring people out. I mean, this is this is making these events something to do now, whereas people Many of them weren't considering it before. Max Herz is here in studio with us, host of the Anchor Down podcast. You can check it out at thegamenashville.com. All right, so the Vandy boys begin. They won the SEC tournament in in dramatic fashion, walk-off fashion, last weekend. Now the regionals have begun over at Hawkins Field this weekend. Drake Fellows last night, nine nine innings pitched, only gave up seven hits and two earned runs, 116 pitches on the night. They take care of Ohio State eight to two, and it was it was close at first, but then Vandy slowly pulls away. Yeah, some action in the early innings, and then it kind of becomes a, a ho hum. We got this the rest of the way as Drake Fellows really settled in, and, and Tim Corbin said after the game last night, as he has many times over the course of the season, that Drake Fellows' best asset is that week in and week out, even if he doesn't have his best stuff early, he's a bend but don't break guy. And I think he threw more pitches in the first three innings than he did the final six, which is just crazy. I mean, he he allowed a run in each of the first two innings, then barely allowed anything the rest of the way. I mean, there was a long home run against him. 
I mean, a long home run by Connor Pole, Ohio State first baseman, absolutely smoked one off of him. And then Fellows settled down. He, he said he had some changes with his hand placement. He was releasing too low. He was starting too low in his windup, and he was able to fix that. And, and we've heard that a lot from him this year, that he's made a lot of in-game adjustments, just kind of tweaking things to get his release, his windup right, just to make sure that he's as accurate as he needs to be. And the last four or five innings of that game, he was the best he's been all season. Max Hur is here with us. And I heard you say at the beginning of the season, you and I were talking a little Vandy baseball, and you, you said you believe this is the best team that Tim Corbin has had over there. And I think with the lineup, everybody was going, all right, absolutely. But I look at the pitching staff. I think this is the best rotation he's had since he's been there. That would be an interesting argument. I don't know if I would agree with you on that one. But they've been so steady. I mean, Drake Fellows has started 16 games. Vanderbilt's won all of them. That's insane. They won every single season opener all year. That's almost impossible. I mean, no matter who you have, the odds of winning every single game out of 16. I mean, and even though Drake Fellows probably isn't going to be a first rounder next week, he's been a three-year member of the rotation. He's been so good for this Vandy team, filling whatever role he's been asked to fill. And he gives them a chance to win every game. I mean, he's been great. Kumar Rocker had one bad start at the beginning of the season in his college debut, so he kind of gets a bad rap that he started off the year slow. That's just not true. Uh, since he's been in the starting rotation consistently, he's been great as well. Patrick Raby has the most wins in Vandy history. He's a steady arm. And Mason Hickman, they've made it clear, he's going to be a big factor and a major starter for this team. So those four guys, I mean, you, you go to war with anybody in the country. I don't. I don't think there's a group of four that's possibly better than that. Yeah, and the lineup, I think, obviously helps, too. I mean, that that's going yeah. to um, embe- maybe embellish some things and some thoughts a little bit just because they're so good from top to bottom. Indiana State uh, will be their opponent tonight, uh, a two-seed. What do you know about them? So Vanderbilt has faced Indiana State earlier this season, played them in a midweek game April 16th. Vandy won that game 7-1, but... In the midweek, you're not going to face any of the weekend rotation starters. So that's the big difference. Vandy has played them the last two seasons. They played a three-game series against them back in 2015. So this is a team that Vanderbilt likes to play. They are the 24th RPI team, so they're very much deserving of a two-seed. They won the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament Championship. That's a three-bid league with Dallas Baptist and Illinois State in there as well. By the way, all three of those teams won yesterday. So all three of those Missouri Valley teams are into the winner's bracket. So, I mean, just because they're not a, a major conference team, don't doubt these guys. They're going to start Colin Liberator tonight, who's a righty. And I, I think Vanderbilt shouldn't have much trouble against him. He's kind of a slower thrower, not really a sidearm type guy that Vandy struggled with, but he's a slower thrower, and Vanderbilt occasionally has had trouble figuring those guys out in early innings. So we'll see what they can do with him. But I don't think he should pose too much trouble. And the big thing is they used their relief ace, their closer, Will Dion, yesterday for four innings to finish off a one-run win over McNeese, which I didn't think would be as close as it was. So they are presumably without him tonight. Mm, that's going to be interesting. And also Tennessee, uh, just sticking with the SEC, they they lose last night. So they're now in the loser's bracket. They're going to play uh, in less than an hour, they will start their game. But Tennessee being back in the tournament is a big deal. Yeah, they finished up late last night, so that is a tough, quick turnaround. There were some interesting times in that regional yesterday in Chapel Hill. So North Carolina 
is the host there, obviously, national seed. They're playing UNC Wilmington, who's the four, pretty good UNC Wilmington program. And that game was close all the way. North Carolina leading by one in the top of the ninth. UNC Wilmington ties it on an error, then goes ahead on a close play at the plate that was originally called out, then turned to safe. UNC Wilmington goes ahead. First pitch, bottom nine. UNC massive home run to retie it. Aaron Sabato had a monster shot to make it 6-6. Three-hour rain delay, and then UNC wins it on a botched rundown in the bottom of the ninth. So through all of this, Tennessee and Liberty are just waiting to play their first game. And they're getting ready to go, and the NCAA says, nope, it's too late to start. you got to play tomorrow morning. And then 10 minutes later, <laughs> they come back and say, just kidding, you're going to play tonight. And then Tennessee just got it handed to them. Liberty played really well. It was at 6-1, I think the final was, 7-1 yep. maybe. I mean, Tennessee had nothing. I mean, they, they got to pitch their way through a regional. Their pitching has been great all season. But, yeah, they came out flat. He's Max Hers, host of the Anchor Down podcast here in the game, Nashville. Check that out. When we come back here on the Chase McCabe Show, Malcolm Turner and Vanderbilt announcing some much-needed renovations to their athletic facilities. I'll get Max's thoughts on that and much more here on the Chase McCabe Show, ESPN, 1025 The Game. Join ESPN The Game Nashville at the Nashville Fairgrounds today for the Music City Outlaw Nationals. It's the greatest show on dirt. For the first time in the world of outlaws, they're bringing their 900 sprint cars to Music City. The quarter-mile track at the Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway has been covered in dirt for the inaugural Music City Outlaw Nationals, one of sprint car racing's biggest weekends. Uh, Gates will open at 3 o'clock today with the opening ceremonies at 7. I was there last night. It is pretty cool to uh, see dirt racing out at the fairgrounds and just another effort to help bring NASCAR and big-time racing, get some renovations done out there, and uh, get some racing out at the fairgrounds. And speaking of renovations, Max, <laughs> this is a perfect segue. Vroom, vroom. Now, how about that? Uh, Vanderbilt announced this week they are going to do some renovations to both um, the stadium, the football stadium, and Memorial Gym. The Hawk is getting new turf, which I didn't really know it needed, but okay, great. Um and, and I'm going to go ahead and preface this. I've been a Vanderbilt fan since I knew what sports basically were, and I've gone into those facilities for a long time, and I'm, I'm a little cynical because that stadium needs more than a new scoreboard and, and some bathroom renovations. It's a, it's a step. It's a good step, but they need bigger things than that. Do you believe that Malcolm Turner has started this process and this is just a step in eventually a either a major renovation to that current stadium or building a new one? Yes, 100%. The way you described it is exactly Malcolm Turner's outlook on it. And I know his hire was announced before Christmas, before New Year's, so it kind of feels like he's been on the job for a while. But today starts month number five for him. Right. So, I mean, it's it's been four months. We're, we're just out of first 100 days, if you want to put it in presidential terms. But he is, with his background in consulting, which, by the way, I think is perfect to run the show at Vanderbilt, because I think 50% of current Vanderbilt students go into consulting, right. which I think is ironic. But, I mean, he has, he has come in with the consulting background, and he has assessed the situation— taken note of what needs change and gotten all the facts and then he's taken steps to to make those changes 
And these are first steps. He said they are first steps. And I think we'll see announcement, maybe maybe announcements or maybe just kind of the general plan moving forward come out over the summer when he has a little bit more time. Well, and and I look at I look at what they're saying they're going to do, and yeah, they need a new video board. Okay, we agree with that. Get get with the times and upgrade. And they're taking the other one out that doesn't really do much. And the bathrooms that's a huge problem because there's not enough of them. Yeah. There's always lines, so they're going to do some things there. You can't. There's not much you can do with the concourses at this point with that current facility without doing something major which, as we said, is probably going to be this, the next step. But he also said that he's going to get with Coach Derek Mason on the locker rooms and redoing that. They've been doing continuous things at McGugan Center. So I, I like that. I love the thought process. Now, if I'm speaking to the donors, if I'm speaking to the students and alums and, and everything like that, I'm saying, let's help this process because right. you, you have an awesome campus it, when you look at all the schools of the SEC, you have something that none of the others do. You're in a huge city. You're in the it city. It's time for Vanderbilt and their athletic facilities to fit the rest of, of Nashville. Yeah, and I think the, the message to boot with that is we're going to spend whatever it takes to make that happen, and that's a new one. I mean, the we we talked about the, the change in the SEC beer sales before, and, and Vanderbilt was one of the yes votes. I mean, they, they support this process. David Williams had always said that he did not support the sale of beer in SEC stadiums because of the legal liability involved, and he comes from a law background, so that makes sense. But with the background that Malcolm Turner comes from, pro sports, imagine if there were no beer at NBA games. I mean, he he was high up at the NBA, and he knows – I mean, that that's all he knows, basically. And I mean, that's all most of us know from attending pro sporting events, college sporting events and other conference. I mean, the, it's just the, the perspective has changed in terms of the, the number one, the number one most important voice in Vanderbilt athletics. And, and Chancellor Zeppos appears to be on board as well. And what all of a sudden is his final few months as chancellor. So I'll ask a very broad question, but I think it's relevant in this situation. Five years from now, what is what does that campus look like from an athletic standpoint? Ooh, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I don't think it would be the just just solely my opinion. This has nothing to do with what I think they're going to do. I don't think it would be the worst thing ever for them to play off campus. And I know that is apparently an unpopular opinion in the fan base. I I think it would be fine. I think it would be doable, whether it's at the MLS stadium or maybe at Nissan for a couple of mm-hmm. years. But I don't think that's the worst thing ever, and I think the positive of that would be if the football stadium is not currently where it is, they get a little bit of breathing room for everything else. I think you're a smart man because that's exactly where I was going with that. <laughs> now, I, I believe that ultimately they would like to play on campus, and yeah. and you just mentioned it with the current football stadium. Let's say they just completely blow it up, tear it down, and there's a hole there for them to build a new stadium. It's not quite wide enough. Right for them to build exactly what they need to do. And and I don't know. I'm not an architect. I'm, I'm not a city planner. You're not? I don't, no, I am not. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm barely a radio host. <laughs> uh, I, I, know, I know they would have to move into Natchez Trace and close some streets, and they, there would be some logistical things that they would have to take care of. Nothing that they couldn't do, right? but that would obviously take some time. I believe in that time frame, and it could be sooner than five years, they're playing at the MLS stadium, albeit – a temper on a temporary basis uh because i do believe they want to build something new on campus but that's what that to me makes the most sense because it's going to be 20 30,000 
which is really all Vanderbilt needs, do something like that and play over there while they build something over on campus. Yeah, and I think talking about covering streets up and things like that, the space that I always thought could be something is the big medical center parking lot area behind Natchez. If you go from McGugan across Natchez Trace to that big parking lot area where some of the rec fields are, there's a big turf field up there, which is basically just for intramurals, and I think the club lacrosse team might play there sometimes. I mean, to me, that's space that they could probably leverage, and that's wide. And, I mean, you you replace that parking just by building a massive garage somewhere. And with everything going the on... the old stadium. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, with everything going on on campus and the amount of cars that come in there on a daily basis just to work at the medical center, I mean, no amount of extra parking would be a bad thing ever. So I, I think maybe that's worth exploring. And again, I, I don't know exactly what it would take to to give all of that to athletics and, and who exactly owns it. I mean, I assume the university or the medical center owns it, but those are separate things now. So I don't know. That, that, that to me is the spot on campus that makes the most sense. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And I, I know it's cool to have, you know, Memorial and Hawkins Field and, and the football stadium all right there connected to each other. I mean, it is kind of a cool look. But if you can build something better by moving them a little further apart, I don't you know, that's not a terrible thing. So it's just unique. I, I don't think there's any advantage to it other than it's unique. I mean, you have to walk in the football stadium to get into Hawkins field. Yeah. Like it's that that's always been weird to me that you yeah. just walk around through there. And even there's a, I, I believe there's an entrance. You walk through there to get to Memorial gym. I mean, yeah. And now you walk in order to get in between the infield and the outfield seats of baseball, which wasn't possible until a couple of years ago, you walk through Memorial. <laughs> just, it's a, it's a little, little crazy now uh the hawk doesn't need that much done to it i, I guess it's just time to redo the turf uh with technology the way it is so they're going to do that memorial gym nobody wants to see it go completely away but we all agree that it needs some work too uh air conditioning would be nice uh at some <laughs> point but they're going to redo the sound system and the lights yeah so for first on the baseball field this is year seven of the turf so they put that in in before the 2013 season and yeah, it's, it's just time for for a new carpet. They they had a lot of areas of it. I think around first base, and maybe a couple spots in the outfield where it's kind of patched over. Just the areas that get a lot of foot traffic. And they are, I mean, they are looking at major league level turf for. I mean, Tim, Tim cool. Corbin went to earlier this season went to an Arizona Diamondbacks game just to look at their, the turf they have at Chase Field. Chase McCabe field yes as, I didn't even realize that known. was turf I mean that's how good yeah. it looks yeah it's I think they put that in either this year or last year he was saying so I mean they they're just looking at a new surface state-of-the-art surface and I mean they can do it so why wouldn't they yeah um, sorry go ahead real, real quick just I again here comes the cynical side for baseball <laughs> I just oh I love a grass field I just want. I just want. They grass. just. They save so many practice days and so many innings with it. They're, they. Yeah. They ain't going back. No, I understand. All right, Memorial basketball. Yeah, I mean we've. They put a new sound system in a couple years ago, which was good. I'm. I'm sure there are still improvements that can be made, but the acoustics in that in that barn are are just something else to deal with. I mean, <laughs> the when it was designed in 1952, it, it was not designed to have speakers in it. So that's just kind of kind of a wait and see keep trying to figure things out type challenge do what you can but 
yeah, the the player facilities certainly need some upgrades. I think that's probably where the next big chunk of basketball money goes, and that plays a big role in recruiting also. He is Max Hurst. Check him out uh, at Max Hurst Talks on Twitter and also the Anchor Down podcast at thegamenashville.com. Before I let you get out of here, because I'm about to transition to hockey, game three tonight, who you got? I got Robert Bortuzzo and the St. Louis Blues. I'm with you at home, first home game and. 40-something years in the Stanley Cup playoff or Stanley Cup finals, I should say. It's going to be a lot of fun. Max, appreciate it as always. Thanks, Jace. You heard me. You heard him there. Max Herr is talking some Vanderbilt. Check out his podcast. And when we come back, is Boston that good or can St. Louis take control of this series? We'll discuss. Chase McCabe Show, ESPN 1025 The Game. The NHL and NBA playoffs coverage on 1025 The Game and 94.9 Game 2 is presented by Indochino Custom Tailored Suits in Green Hills Mall. Visit Indochino.com. Tonight, you can catch Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final between the Bruins and the St. Louis Blues. Coverage begins at 645 right here on ESPN 1025 The Game. And on Sunday, check out the NBA Finals. Coverage of Game 2 as Golden State takes on Toronto. Coverage begins at six here on the game chase mccabe here with you back chase mccabe show at the game national studios presented by wholesale inc of mountain juliet appreciate max for hanging out captain kurt behind the glass so you heard it game three between the blues and the bruins will take place tonight it's the first home game uh in the stanley cup final for the st louis blues in the enterprise center ever and uh, in St. Louis, and I believe close to 50 years, it's 49, 49 years that uh, they have been back there in the, in the Stanley Cup final. It's going to be rocking. I'm so I'm excited for that fan base because I remember what it was like the first time the Stanley Cup final came here two years ago. I didn't know what to expect because the you know you always hear the phrase "act like you've been there before." Well, we had never been there before, so we knew that the this fan base here in Nashville was crazy and had been crazy throughout the playoffs and it was going to go up probably three levels um once the Stanley Cup final got here against Pittsburgh in St. Louis you know I've been to a game there earlier this year it's a different feel it's a different fan base I, I mean they're passionate they like their team they support their team but you know the the being loud and all of that and and the different things that go into you know who's going to sing the anthem and towel wave and all that with, with Nashville it's just a very different feel but I do believe it's going to uh, be a fun atmosphere because St. Louis has a uh, the potential at home to go up 2-1 in this series it was a gutsy overtime win against Boston you know I believe that they rebounded like they needed to after losing game one they were up 2-0 in game one and they let Boston battle back and and win that one, and a lot of people were looking at that going as, well, you know what, St. Louis just lost the series. You can't win the series in game one, but you can you can do things to lose it. And they might have done that. They bounced back in game number two on the road in overtime, but taking a game that they needed to get uh, to tie the series at one. Because if they had come into game, game number three down 2-0, it was going to be tough for them to come back. Uh, Boston is just too good. They adapt too well to uh to their opponent's style of play bruce cassidy has done a tremendous job with that team but craig berube has done a tremendous job with his team and they get that and they come back tied at one to play the first home game uh in the stanley cup final in the city of st louis in 49 years 
and Craig Berube addressed the media and discussed the emotions of playing at home. We talk about it for sure. Uh, we talk about that a lot, both rinks, you know, uh, keeping your emotions in check. Um, you know, that's going to be important, and that's great for the city and the fans. Like, we're excited for them, you know, obviously us too, but, you know, waiting a long time for that game, and, um, you know, it's going to be exciting. And, uh, again, I'm really happy for the fans and uh, the city for sure. We always discuss the storylines of any event. It's more than just a game. There's always these little storylines that go into it. And for this, I, I think it's the story of being the worst team in the league in January to now playing in the Stanley Cup final with the series tied at one. It's not just a, oh, we're having a Cinderella story. I guess they are a little bit of one, but they have they have earned it each step of the way. And you've heard people say on this state, I mean, I didn't want to play St. Louis. That was the Predators. You know, you have the mentality of you take on anybody that comes your way, but they were just they were hot at the right time. They were playing as a cohesive unit and playing consistent hockey and they've done it every step of the way in now up to the Stanley Cup final with the series tied at 1. Now you're going into a barn that has never hosted a Stanley Cup final game in a city that hasn't hosted one in 49 years. Yeah, that's a combination that you want to want to go up against if you're the Boston Bruins. But one thing that St. Louis is going to have to do is uh they're going to have to deal with some lineup changes. Uh, Zach Sanford is expected to replace forward uh, Oscar Sundquist, who has been suspended for a game by the NHL Department of Player Safety because of uh, a boarding hit on Matt Grizzlick in the first period of Game 2 on Wednesday. Grizzlick looks to be out for the Boston Bruins. So Sundquist is a, is a guy that's uh, they're going to miss, that he is going to be out of the lineup due to suspension. But Craig Berube says lineup changes is just something that they've had to deal with. It's been tested. It was tested all year. I think that uh, Doug Armstrong's done a great job of at, at being having given us good depth throughout the year. Uh, you know, from the on the back end and up front. So, and again, you know, with the suspension, you know, another another guy's going to have to come in and play well. On Sunquest, Bruby went on to say, "We miss him a lot. He's a good player. He does a lot of good things for us on both sides of the puck. Good penalty killer, plays center, wing." And great defensively, that's produced for us in the playoffs too. As you heard him say in the clip, though, that's a part of it. Grizzlick will be day-to-day in concussion protocol. He did not make the trip to St. Louis. So, again, out for game three. Both teams, and how many times have you heard me or anyone else say this? At this point in the playoffs, nobody is 100%. You're going to have guys come in and out of the lineup. We saw it two years ago uh, with the Nashville Predators. Ryan Johansson was out. Kevin Fiala was out. Mike Fisher missed some time. You had Craig Smith that missed time. I mean, it's just that's how it goes. Guys get hurt. Guys come out of the lineup. That's why you have that next man up mentality. That's why you build a, a great minor league program. You have the black aces that you can slide in as you need them. And so for St. Louis, that's – that's what they need, and they need their big guys to continue to step up and play. The thing that has been so dangerous about the Boston Bruins is throughout the playoffs, they've been deep up and down the lineup. They've had the first line, the second line, the third line, the fourth line, the fifth line, the sixth line. That You see what I'm doing there. They've had everybody step up, up and down the lineup. Now St. Louis is going to have to um, continue that as well as they battle against Boston in game number three and hope to take a 2-1 series lead at home. This is a perfect opportunity for them to really capitalize on a situation and and take control of this series because 
Boston is a team that I believe can be in any type of scenario and bounce back. I don't know that about St. Louis. If St. Louis falls 2-1 at home uh, in the series, maybe they can come back from that. But then going back to Boston and having to win games, I think will be tough for them. They need to take care of business at home. That's what they need to do. Craig Berube discussed the game plan of being at home. I don't think it really changes a whole lot from uh, home road. Uh, it's just getting to our game, uh, being on the four check, make sure we do a good job with the puck, you know, starting in our own end, making good plays, making the right plays through the neutral zone, being good with the puck. The Bruins do a great job defensively. They force force you into a lot of bad puck decisions and, and uh, turnovers, We and we got to stay away from that. We did a much better job in game two of that. We're on the forecheck a lot more, leads to a lot more ozone time, and that's going to keep our crowd engaged. Um, they're used to that style here at home here, so we need to get on a forecheck and be physical and, and control that puck in the offensive zone. Keeping the crowd engaged, that's going to be huge for the Blues tonight. Take the Bruins out of it with using the crowd. That's something we see that the Preds do here in Nashville. St. Louis is going to have to do that with their crowd later on tonight. Get them into it early. Uh, as simple as this sounds, you get a goal early in this game, similar to what they did in game one, but then you got to hold on to that lead. You can't let Boston battle back. Take control early. You're going up 2-1 in the series. That's going to be huge for the Blues in their quest to win their first Stanley Cup. Uh, and, you know, I said a few weeks ago that I thought the Western Conference final, final was a formality. I've kind of changed my tune a little bit. But St. Louis is going to have to do their job tonight uh, in order for me to continue to think that way, because this is a this has potential to be a fun series that goes the distance. We've already seen the physicality, we've already seen four checking and, and things like that, and we've seen some scoring. We've seen some some good goaltending play on both sides out of Tuukka Rask and Jordan Bennington. St. Louis has a chance to take control tonight, and again, you can hear it with coverage from Westwood One NBC Sports starting right here on ESPN One Hundred Two Five. The game at 645 all brought to you by indochino when we return we close things out by shifting back into the tennessee titans and head coach mike vrabel and his relationship with his staff we will discuss that next the chase mccabe show on nashville's best sports talk espn 1025 the game welcome back chase mccabe show espn 1025 the game it's, a, it's Ringo, right? Ringo singing on that one uh, from the Sgt. Pepper's album, I believe. Captain, spinning the tunes back well there. Well done, sir. Thank you very much. A little help from my friends. As we wrap things up, discussing some Titans. It's been a big show today. We've hit a lot. You know, two hours. Somebody said to me one time, like, how do you fill two hours? Like, Look, it's there's a lot you can get into in two hours' time uh, every week. So join us. 9 a.m. every Saturday, and also if you miss the show, thegamenashville.com has everything for you, so you can uh, check it out if you miss anything from any of our shows, but especially this one. Head coach Mike Vrabel of the Tennessee Titans going into year number two. We don't have as many question marks about him after year number one as we do. They, they, the questions change going into the second year. When you look at the first year, to me what stands out is – he was a rookie head coach that had to make some decisions that sometimes went his way. There were some challenges that you question, but sometimes they they go in a went in a different direction, and you're thinking, all right, maybe you don't do that. 
the next time around. Overall, I thought he did a pretty good job. Nine and seven, that's a winning record. Yeah, you barely missed the playoffs. You had a quarterback that was injured for most of the season. You, one of your best players and your tight end was out. Uh, you you had a up-and-down offensive line. You had a run game that was inconsistent until the second half of the year. It took times time for the offense to really click and that system to make a, a lot of sense to these guys. But the second half looked a lot better than the first half, and for a rookie head coach, that's what you want. In year number two, you've changed offensive coordinators, but the offensive the offense itself you're not planning to change that much. You are hoping that it's consistent and there's a lot of carryover. Your GM has given you more weapons. You heard me say after the draft that I was laughing because his press conference, Vrabel's press conference after the draft, he was kind of like, listen, I just opened all my presents on Christmas morning. Like they, They're sitting there staring at me, and now mom is making me go sit at the dinner table and have Christmas dinner. I just want to go play. So that's what I want to do. I just want to go play with my toys. I just got them. That's that's kind of the vibe I got from him. And it's the vibe I continue to get from him that he loves that he has OTAs right now because he's out, he's putting everything together. He's building the Legos. That's He's putting the Legos together right now because he has all his pieces. One thing that I like about him, but it also worries me a little bit, is I think he's cut from the Belichick cloth, and he's a control freak. He's got to have his hands on everything. Now, I believe he has learned after year one that he's going to let the coaches do their jobs, but he's going to be the guy in the back of the room, you know, just kind of checking it out. Dean Pease is someone he played for. He trusts Dean Pease. You let Dean Pease do his job. But I am I'm wondering about Arthur Smith because Arthur Smith has been with this organization through different head coaches for the last seven or eight years. Now he is the play caller for the first time in his career. Vrabel commented on what type of feedback he gives to his new OC. I do that with Dean, and Dean's been doing it for 35 years. So if I do it with Dean, there's probably a pretty good chance that I would do it with Arthur and every one of our coaches. Just try to make sure that you know we're on the same page, that oh, this is what we're trying to get out of practice. Um, hey, let's look to, to, to run this a few more times. This didn't look great. Let's make sure we... You know, get a few more looks at this. Um, so we're doing that in all, all three phases. That That's nonstop. That's a head coach being a head coach. That And look, if I'm an owner, let's say I am Amy Adams-Strunk, I take over. She, she says, Chase, you have the team. Here you go. Good luck. I want my head coach to be that involved. Because if I bring the head coach in for a meeting and I, and I say to Mike Vrabel, I go, hey, Mike, uh, so what happened in, what happened, uh, in the – running backs meeting room today what were they discussing what, what was the gist of what they were going over I want him to know the answer and he doesn't have to give me details but the head coach needs to know what's going on in his house and Mike Vrabel does I believe John Robinson does that's their job they need to know what is going on in their house and this is a process with Arthur Smith Arthur Smith, yes, he's been there, but this is the first time he's going to be calling the plays. This is the first time that he is going to be talking to Marcus Mariota in the headset saying, hey, this is what play you're going to call. It's the first time that he's done that in his career. So it is a process. Mike Vrabel went on to discuss the process with Arthur Smith. I would say that the same way it's working for everybody. I think that they evaluate the plays that they have in and how they, how they taught it. 
and how the players were able to understand it in the, in the meetings and then be able to execute it. And if they didn't execute it, we got to find out why and then continue to, to teach it and, and find different ways to, to get it across to our players. So, you know, right now, I think that's just where we're at in OTAs. It's, it's not, nothing is competitive. It's non-contact camp. I said last week that the most important relationship for the Tennessee Titans would be that of Marcus Mariota and Arthur Smith. And I stand by that. I do believe that that is the most important relationship. But the second most important relationship on this team is going to be between Mike Vrabel, the head coach, and the offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith. They have to be on the same page. And Mike, what Mike Vrabel is going to have to do, this is where being a control freak is difficult. He's going to have to trust that Arthur Smith is going to make the right call, and then Arthur Smith is going to have to trust that Arthur Smith is going to make the right call. He's going to have to trust himself because it's going to be very easy for that self-doubt to creep in. It's going to be very easy for Arthur Smith to say, okay, it's fourth and two or Mike has told me to go for it. Derrick Henry's been having, having a heck of a game, but this situation tells me that Marcus needs to hit Delaney in the flat. I He has to trust in himself that that's the right call. Because it would be very easy for him to think, well, oh, Vrabes is going to question this. Is Vrabes going to go? Does he like this play? Because Vrabel just has that type of, you know, command of his team. You're gonna you're gonna look at him and think, okay, I, does he trust me to do this? You have to trust yourself first. Their relationship is going to be key. And Vrabel, on the flip side of this, cannot publicly, constantly question what Arthur Smith is doing. He has to trust, okay, this is the guy that I picked to do this job. Matt LaFleur was the guy he originally picked, but we all knew Matt LaFleur wasn't going to be here very long. Maybe thought he'd get two years, but we didn't think he was going to be here very long. Now you got Arthur Smith. You got some continuity. You got a guy that you don't have to worry about him leaving to be a head coach yet. Maybe eventually. We don't know. We don't know how this is going to turn out. He could be... This could could have been the right choice all along. You never know. But the idea is he's going to be here for two to three years as the offensive coordinator for Marcus Mariota and the Tennessee Titans. Vrabel has to trust that he's made that right decision. Now, on the other side of the coin, we knew that he had probably made the right decision when he hired Dean Pease because this is a guy that had been in the league for a long time, not as long as Dick LeBeau, but he had been around the block. He had been with the Baltimore Ravens decided that he was done, wanted to retire. Mike Vrabel gets the job, calls his old defensive coordinator that he played for and says, Dean, I trust you. I need you. You know the way I think. You know what type of defense I want to run. I want you to come run this defense. And look, there was times last year where we were thinking this was going to be a one and done and that Vrabel could be replacing both coordinators. I said that. I went on record and saying I think he's replacing both coordinators because I think LaFleur is going to get a coaching job, and I believe that Dean Pease is going to retire. Well, Pease came back. Vrabel was asked about his reaction when he found out that Dean Pease was returning. Well, yeah, continue the continuity. I was I was happy and excited for, for Dean personally because that means he, he was feeling uh, great and ready to come back, feeling refreshed uh, that him and Mel had made a, a decision that was um, – in their best interest as well as the best interest of the Titans. And uh, to have him come back has been great for me because he, he's, he's got a lot of experience. He coached me, obviously, 
And so we, we, we sh- easy conversations, you know, we talk things through. And, you know, I, I have maybe some grandiose ideas about doing some things, and then he'll tell me where the pitfalls are. He'll be like, hey, remember when we did that, that you know, we run into this. I said, oh, yeah, you're right. But, you know, just he does a great job of just communicating with me each and every day and, and, and working through things that we want to put in. Mike Vrabel on his defensive coordinator, Dean Pease, and I believe we all agree that the most consistent part of this football team has been the defense. That That is the unit you don't necessarily have to worry about. You know the D-line has gotten better. They've added some pass rush. Cam Wake, even though at his age, he's going to make this team better. Uh, once you get Jeffrey Simmons healthy, he's going to make this team better. You know what you get in Jarrell Casey. The secondary, they really came on towards the end of the year. Adoree Jackson, you you want him to take it to another level. Uh, you hope that Malcolm Butler can continue his success. Kevin Byard in a contract year. You you know what he is. So the defense you feel pretty good about. That linebacking core as well. Having Dean Pease back is huge for this team because you don't have to change much. It's You're going into year two, and now it's just we're adding on to what we already know. We'll see how the relationships play out. Um, we're going to have a lot of off-season discussions. They have another OTA on Tuesday uh, that's open to the media, so we will have more to discuss when we come back next week. Be sure to tune in tonight, Stanley Cup Final, game number three at 645. That is going to do it for another fantastic week of the Chase McCabe Show. My thanks to Max Herz and Steve Lehman, and, of course, Captain Kurt and all of you for listening. We are Nashville's best sports talk, ESPN 1025 The Game.